Welcome to Positive Disintegration Podcast. This is episode three, Dabrowski, Philosophy and Influences. Welcome back everyone to Positive Disintegration, a framework for becoming your authentic self. I'm your host, Emma Nicholson, a business analyst who specializes in using business tools and techniques to explain Dabrowski's theory on my YouTube channel, Adults with Overexcitabilities. I write the Tragic Gift blog, and I'm the technical director of the Podiversity podcast. With me today is my resident co-host and expert on positive disintegration, Chris Wells, a Dabrowski scholar, researcher, and therapist in private practice. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Emma. It's great to be back. I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm excited about today's episode because we've got our first guest on. I'm excited to have our first guest too, finally. And our guest is someone who you've worked with um, who has enormous amount of expertise in all things Dabrowski. That's right. I feel really grateful for Bill for helping me learn about the theory, for providing me resources, for being my friend. And I'm excited to have him on the show today with us. And we're going to be talking a little bit about who Dabrowski was with a a bit of an inside insight into who that actual man was behind the theory. So I can't wait. That's right. Today's guest is Bill Tillier. Bill received a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Calgary and went on to complete a Master of Science degree at the University of Alberta. It was there that he met Dr. Dabrowski and became his student. Upon graduation, Bill worked as a forensic psychologist for over 20 years before developing a neuromuscular disorder. Over the years, Bill maintained his interest in Dabrowski, creating a web page, promoting and distributing Dabrowski's original works, and helping with many Dabrowski conferences. Bill is now retired and spent much of his time volunteering and keeping the Dabrowski archives up to date. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you very much for having me, Chris and Emma. Welcome. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Well, I'm happy to be here. And again, thank you for having me. Bill, you've got a heap of experience in working with Dabrowski's theory and also working with the man himself. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like working with him and what sort of person he was? That's always a question people ask. And it's always a very hard question to answer because I feel that I've never met anyone in my life like Dabrowski. Um, he was one of a kind. And as I say, I've, I've never met anybody that I felt was even close to him. And um, he had a couple of characteristics that really stuck out. One was that he was tremendously empathetic and you felt his presence when you talked to him. You felt like you were the only person in the room and that you had his total undivided attention. And he just made you feel somehow that he was really understanding you. He was extremely intelligent. I've never really met anybody as intelligent. I can honestly say that. But he was also very, very humble. And he never put himself in the center of things. He never put himself at the front of the line. You know often turn around and you wouldn't be able to see him. He'd be at the back of the room. So he was very humble. And the other thing that stuck out about him 
was he had an unbelievable energy level. He was relentless in pursuing work on his theory. And he had very high standards for the people that were around him. But he held himself to the highest standard. And it's funny because I was reminiscing that often he would work until 11 at night. And um, Marlene, his assistant, one time told me a funny story. They'd gone overtime till about 11.30 at night, and he stepped out of the room. And Marlene said that they had assumed he'd gone home, and they were putting their coats on. And he came back in. He had just gone to the washroom. He came back in, and they went till 2 in the morning. And invariably, after our sessions at the meetings, it would be uh, winter in Edmonton and often quite cold. And his house was about 15 or 20 blocks from the university. And I would offer him a ride home and he, he would never accept. He always said, no, uh, I must walk. And he walked everywhere. He was always walking. Do you think he had overexcitabilities himself? Absolutely. And um, yes, I think it was really obvious that Dabrowski had all of the different overexcitabilities. And I can give you a couple of examples. In addition to the one that I just mentioned, that he was always very energetic and very active, always walking, always uh, thinking, you could see his intellectual overexcitability. There were times at seminars, he would be trying to express a concept and he didn't like the English phrase. So he would often be thinking and speaking in English and then express something in French or Spanish or Polish, trying to get the exact meaning that he wanted to communicate. And it was really quite elegant to hear him speak. He had very strong sensual overexcitability. He always had a Band-Aid on the back of his hand because when he was talking, he would rub the back of his hand and he would rub it raw and have a Band-Aid on it to protect it. And when he was talking, he also had the habit of rubbing the skin behind his ear. And that was also a chronic problem area. But that was an example of, I guess, both psychomotor and sensual. I think that what stood out for me was that you just felt a tremendous sense of calm and caring. And that he was very empathetic and very compassionate. So I think that he definitely did have all of the overexcitabilities. You know, when you think about his past, he talks often about the fact that his sister died of meningitis when she was four, and I think he would have been about six. And he was terribly impacted by that. And as he put it, he had to confront death at a very early age. And then when you think that when he was in high school, the Russians invaded the town he was in, and his high school class went to the front lines in the battle and some 30 children in his high school class were killed. And um, 
you know, when you think about the intense emotions that he had as a child and having those experiences must have been overwhelming. It's hard to imagine. And then, of course, he talks about a famous battle that uh, occurred near the village he was in. And as I understand it, there were about 150 dead soldiers in a field just adjacent to the village or town that he grew up in. And he talks often about walking through this field as a boy about what, 11 or 12, I guess, and being struck at the faces of the dead soldiers. Some faces were frozen in fear, but some faces showed a very calm and beautiful expression, reminding him of someone being asleep. I think that that experience was the first time the concept of levels came to him. And when you think about that as a teenager, that's extraordinary. I agree. It's interesting to me how he went through so much, he witnessed so much suffering in his early life between World War I and, you know, he survived the influenza pandemic of 1918. And we don't know what that was like for him in Poland, but now that we've been through a pandemic, we have some sense of, you know, how devastating it can be. And then to get his degrees and start working only to have everything kind of derailed by World War II, he went through so much in the first 50 years of his life, just getting himself situated and working through his theory through these really difficult conditions. It's amazing to me. I think there's two things that are amazing. And of course, you mentioned the flu epidemic, but his first wife died of tuberculosis. And when you think about it, in those days, they didn't have the medications we do today. So that must have been hard for him to, to watch her die of tuberculosis unmedicated. That's right. But, you know, I had a chance to study Maslow, and uh, I found it very interesting that I saw a huge parallel between Maslow's childhood and Dabrowski's in the sense that both of them had tremendous challenges in their childhoods, but both of them had very, very strong, we'd call it third factor, of course. They had very strong internal energy and internal drive and internal motivation that allowed them to overcome these obstacles, especially in Dabrowski's case, the juxtaposition between the stress and chaos that he faced versus the educational opportunities that he created for himself and the people he studied under. That's just a, a, a tremendous juxtaposition. And when you Look at the influences on Dabrowski. It just illustrates if he hadn't had such a chaotic environment, if he was living in stable times, imagine what would have happened. It's true. He developed his theory under very difficult conditions. He had no academic freedom until he came to Canada, when you think about it, because by the time he, like the first full outline of the theory was in 1949, right? And at that time, that was when the communists were taking over Poland. And so 
from that point until he ended up in Canada, he didn't work under any conditions of academic freedom. And so, I don't know, it's a, it's a huge story. I'm glad that we're having this opportunity with you to kind of bring him to life as a person and help people understand that, you know, this theory didn't come from a place of privilege, which some people have kind of claimed lately in Gifted Ed, people who have no idea who he was or what he did. But it certainly didn't come from a place of privilege. Like he had to fight for all of this to, to even survive through those times in Poland. So many psychiatrists were killed in Poland during World War II. He was lucky to even survive it. There was a list of, uh, I think it was 130, was it, on the list? And only four survived. And he was one of the four. Yeah, I don't remember the numbers, but you're probably right. I mean, it was, it's astonishing. That was in the 1964 book. It, it seems like Nebraska had a lot of, obviously, life influences that inputted into his theory. Um, but he had other influences as well, no doubt, from his studies and from his reading. Um, Bill, can you tell us a little bit about what some of his main influences were? Because I've seen on your website, you talk um, in some of your PowerPoint presentations about things like Plato. And I'm just wondering what you thought his main influences were and how it sort of shaped his thinking. At the beginning of his life, his interests were very broad. He wanted to be a journalist and he was very influenced by music. He was a musician and he wanted to be, he thought about being a professional musician at one point. And he was also tremendously influenced by art. And as I understand it, he had a sizable art collection in Poland that he accumulated throughout his life. Now, when he was in his master's studies, I believe he was studying philosophy, one of his best friends committed suicide. And he decided to devote his life to study why people commit suicide and what he could do to understand the, the problem. So I think that those influences at the beginning were very important to understand the set of context for where he later went. Now, when he started the study, his influences were very broad. He began by studying philosophy and was very uh, impacted by the major philosophers. Now, one time I asked him, I said, what book should I read to get insight into the foundations of your theory? And he said, read Plato. And at the time, I didn't really appreciate that. But later, when I tried to dig down into that, you could really understand where the idea of multilevelness came from. Because Plato essentially analyzed reality based on different levels. And he was also influenced by people like Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, and later by the Spanish philosopher Unamuno and by Carl Jaspers. So he had very broad influences from philosophy. As well, we have to remember that he was also a physician and a psychiatrist, and he was influenced by the study of neurology, and he studied people like the English neurologist, John Hubelins Jackson, 
and Charles Sherrington, as well as the famous Polish neurologist, Mazurkiewicz. He was also influenced by other psychiatrists, for example, Janet and a couple of other existential psychiatrists. When you add those elements together, you get a real, a very interesting blend of different approaches. Dabrowski took a very unique approach to philosophy. He combined two approaches that are usually seen as opposing. That is, he took the school of essence and combined it with existentialism. So Dabrowski's idea was that we're all born with a fundamental, unique, authentic essence. And it's our job to bring that essence out into fruition. And that most of the time, the individual's essence is suppressed by social forces. So you try to blend in to your social peer group and you lose your individual authentic essence. Now, Dabrowski came up with the interpretation that in order to express your essence, you had to use the choices you had available to you on a day-to-day basis. And that's where the existential aspect of the theory comes in. In that sense, whether or not your essence comes out depends on the choices you make in your life every day. And Dabrowski would say, to use one of his concepts, the individual has to shape their personality toward the expression of their individual essence through or using the choices they make on a day-to-day basis. And the, the fundamental bedrock of those choices is multilevelness. When you are able to recognize the higher versus the lower, it gives you the opportunity to choose the higher. And in making that choice, you are affirming your essence as you see the world, as you perceive reality. And that then allows you to draw your essence out from the bedrock and make it part of your everyday life, what he called personality ideal. And you also get the chance to like reject the aspects of yourself that you that don't align with that vision or that ideal. And let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Now, it's very common when you're growing up to be shaped by social forces. And one of those very strong forces is parental forces. So my dad was a fireman. I want to be a fireman like him. Or you're shaped by your peer group at school. You're shaped by your community. You're shaped by uh, perhaps your parents are religious and belong to a particular religion. You're shaped by by your broader culture. So all these forces are the initial shapers of your personality. And it's natural 
that at the beginning, the individual essence that defines your authenticity as a unique person is overshadowed by those social forces. So part of the idea of the theory and part of the idea of positive disintegration is the idea that those initial forces create an integration of your personality based on external factors, based on external influences. As the person develops and the dynamisms get stronger, the idea, for example, the idea that your internal motivations come to the surface. And, and you may say, let's say as a teenager, well, you know, when I was six years old, I wanted to be a fireman like my dad. Now that I'm 14, I don't think I want to be a fireman. I feel like I want to be a scientist. Where does that feeling come from? It comes from deep in the person's essence. And the challenge of the individual is to use insight to look within themselves to discover that essence, to discover what kind of person they really want to be. And in that process, you'll also discover the kind of person that you don't want to be. I'll give you an example that I've used before from my own life. My uncle and my family and my brother were hunters, and they went duck hunting. And when I was young, I wanted to get my hunting license and go with them. And I looked forward to that, almost like a rite of passage. I went hunting, and I wasn't very good, thankfully. <clears throat> but I went hunting a few times. And one time in particular, I shot a duck, I looked at it, and immediately I was struck that this was an insane act. It was not something I wanted to do. It was not part of me. It, 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 was, it was something foreign to me. And I realized immediately that I... I didn't want to, I didn't enjoy it, and I didn't want to do it again. So that's an example of personality shaping on the dimension of duck hunting. Now, Dabrowski advocated that in creating your personality idea, you would emphasize those things in your hierarchy that more resemble your essence, and that you would inhibit or transform those things in your life that least resemble or that are less like your essence. So in that process, you shape yourself in the image of your true essence. That was one of the issues that Dabrowski had with Maslow. Maslow advocated through self-actualization, that one should actualize one's self as one finds it. And Maslow is quite explicit that you should actualize both the higher and the lower. Dabrowski said that was a uni-level approach that made no sense because 
the essence of development is to differentiate the higher from the lower, and that's a qualitative differentiation. And again, to draw that distinction into your real life, into your everyday actions by acting on the higher and reducing, eliminating, or transforming the lower. I just wanted to bring it back to the hierarchy of values, because I think that, you know, when I have read about the hierarchy of values in Dabrowski's work, you know, for a long time, I was thinking about it as creating that hierarchy. But I think that really, well, and this is something that I've come to, you know, ponder through discussions with Michael, too. But like, really, I think the hierarchy is discovered, just like you described, because you know, we go through these experiences where we have like a visceral reaction to something that we've done or something that we witness. And that's how we realize what the higher and the lower are. And that's how we can, you know, make these decisions and act on them. But that's like the hierarchy of values is something that we don't talk about enough, I don't think. Let me circle back and, and draw another very important distinction. We talked about Plato being an influence. Plato is also an influence in this sense. Dabrowski rejected the Platonic approach to emotion. Plato believed or wrote that emotion was the enemy of logic. And he advocated that development could only occur through the discovery of the logical forms that shape the universe. And you can only do that intellectually. And that emotion interferes with, inhibits, and distorts that effort. Dabrowski rejected that approach. Dabrowski was also very much influenced by Piaget. And Dabrowski was a student, literal student of Piaget. And Dabrowski endorsed a traditional Piagetian approach to cognition. But he added in the idea that cognition alone was insufficient to lead an authentic life. In order to lead an authentic life, you had to have emotion. And in Dabrowski, he used the terms emotion and value synonymously. So when Chris mentions a hierarchy of values, what you're really talking about is that hierarchy of essence within yourself, reflecting how you feel about life, about all of the different dimensions that you run into in day-to-day life. And if you're not in touch with your own hierarchy of values, for example, If my parents were staunch Mormons and I grew up in the Mormon church, I would derive my values from the canon of the Mormon church and its teachings. I think that Dabrowski's observation, echoing Kierkegaard's, would be that that may not reflect the actual essence or the beliefs of that individual person. And that in order to 
become an authentic individual, you would have to deeply examine your essence, how you feel about life. And at the end of that examination, again, echoing Kierkegaard, if you chose Mormonism as a way of life, fine, but it's chosen after a very conscious and meticulous comparison and review with your own sense of values in life. I'm reminded that Stuart Kaufman said, the faith of the heretic was the strongest and most reliable because the heretic has thought about these things the deepest. Like Bergson, another influence on Dabrowski, often we live very shallow lives where we don't think enough and we don't think deeply enough about what we're doing, how we feel, what we ought to be doing compared to what we are doing. Bergson was critical that we live a superficial life and Dabrowski would encourage people to slow down, not react, but to think and to feel and to get in touch with the deeper essence of what they're doing in life, how they're feeling, how they're interacting, how they're impacting other people. And after that deep consideration, then you decide what to do. And the essence of that or the, the result of that is that you're living a more authentic life. You're not living a, a behaviorism Skinner reaction approach where everything is just a quick reaction to a situation. Even if you take away the speed of reaction, uh, if you're just basing your reactions or your choices on logic without emotion, you run a dangerous risk of becoming almost ruthless in your decision-making. Um, and it cuts out all chances of exercising empathy. So if you don't take into account your emotions and how it makes you feel to do something, and you know, granted some people can feel perfectly fine about some decisions. We, um, we spoke a bit, Chris, in the last episode about you know, some people don't feel shame and they don't feel guilt. But I think if we completely discount our feelings, it can lead down a dangerous path by simply running on logic or doing things by you know, numbers and, and data alone. You know, when we think about the history of psychology, Dabrowski's positioning of emotion as so important as a part of his theory was extremely unpopular for that time. And so that was, was just not, another thing that was that he had to kind of overcome. It was not only unpopular, it was unusual. It ran counter to the, the canon of ever since Plato, our approaches to education were all based on the idea of platonic learning that logic was everything and emotion was not even a consideration. Right. Now, Chris, to your point, to your point about logic and intelligence without emotion, Dabrowski called that one-sided development. And he's made the observation, at the time, we were just coming out of Vietnam, 
and the example we often used was the chemist at Dow Chemical that invented Agent Orange, who had an IQ of 180 and was given all kinds of awards and accolades for discovering Agent Orange, which was used in the deforestation of Vietnam. He had no emotion because he couldn't have done that had he thought about it. And Dabrowski's observation was that the person like that exhibiting one-sided development has done more damage to the world than anyone else. And there's a long list of people and even examples where where their contributions are seen as positive to the greater good. I'll give you an example. Edward Teller was a brilliant scientist who created the, the bomb that they used on Nagasaki. And he calculated on a blackboard that they, they, they took a picture, I'll cut that out, but they took a picture of this blackboard, right? So Teller calculated that there was a 20% chance that the bomb would set fire to the oxygen in the atmosphere and burn the world. And they went ahead with it. There is a man who put logic ahead of emotion. So Bill, how did Dabrowski influence you personally? Well, that's, a, a, again, a very powerful thing for me. I would say that I, as a child, I had a lot of anxiety and a lot of angst and a lot of energy. And when I met Dabrowski, I still had those feelings. Reading Dabrowski first and then meeting him gave me an understanding or context by which I could understand myself and my reactions. And that was vital to me because I could think of specific times in my life when I had things happen and I felt a certain way or I reacted a certain way and no one understood me. So later, when I read the theory, I was able to understand that in a different context. And I remember saying to Dabrowski one time, I said, Dr. Dabrowski, I'm very worried because I have a lot of angst and I have a lot of energy, but I don't know where to put it. And often I feel I get depressed because I don't feel I'm contributing enough or I'm not happy that I'm not progressing quickly enough and I have tremendous anxiety and I'm worried. And he put his hand on my shoulder and I remember him saying, ah, but this is not so bad. And he just looked at me in the eye and I knew I was gonna be okay. And I just felt that he had taken some sort of burden off my shoulders. And I felt later, and I don't think it's an exaggeration, I felt that he saved my life. And he gave me a path out of the chaos that I was in. And later, when he asked me to caretake his theory, I felt a strong sense of loyalty to him. And it was not hard to do because I loved the theory. I was interested in it. As I say, it gave me context to understand my life. And I tried to do the best job I could to represent the theory as he presented it, and as I think he would have wanted it represented. Dabrowski had a vision that the theory could help people 
understand history, politics, human relations, social problems, social issues, and that if we could understand these day-to-day conflicts and problems that bedevil the world, if we could understand it through multi-levelness, we could see a, a way out, a way forward. And the critical thing, not just forward, upward, because for Dabrowski, solutions could not be horizontal. They could not be just forward or backward. They had to be vertical solutions that would literally lift us up from our problems. And that was his vision of the theory. And I've done my best to help people who are struggling because I feel, I felt myself the power of that shift in context, that shift between what is wrong with me versus I'm okay, I can do it. And maybe you felt that same way, Chris, or... Definitely. I mean, on a personal level, for sure, I have felt like I... I mean, there have definitely been times in my life when I've had to make that vertical choice and lift myself out of whatever suffering I was in at that moment. But I'm glad that you brought up, Bill, that it's bigger than just us and our individual issues, that it also applies to our disciplines and our fields and our societies. Because I know that in recent years, I mean, here as an American, I we are in dire need of lifting our society up vertically because we are just recycling the same horizontal conflicts again and again and again, just not seeing progress. It's very difficult. Um, For for people on a personal level, I think it's a similar thread that once we kind of find out about this theory um, and it's that shift of mindset, it's that, you know, the ugly duckling discovery of the fact that you are not a defective duck and you are a swan, that shift from I'm broken to I'm okay is is powerful. I think that's something that all three of us have sort of taken up the mantle on. I think it's probably the one thing that stands out for people that get involved in Dabrowski's theory. But it's a swan with humility. It's not a self-aggrandizing swan. He didn't see his own beauty in the tale. Other people had to tell him that he was beautiful. But I think that's an important point because today I think so many people equate development with strength of ego. I am strong. I am developed. Uh, I am uh, invincible. And that's the opposite of what Dabrowski meant when he talked about development. So I think in the image of the swan in the mirror, we've got to be careful not to self-aggrandize our ego because that's certainly not a developmental feature. Chris, you did you want to add in on that? Because you talked about that, I think, in our first episode as well about egotism. Well, just moving away from 
that egocentrism is a feature of the higher levels of this theory. And I think that relationships are critical, obviously. I mean, in, our, in the last episode, we talked a bit about the relational aspect of emotional overexcitability and that it's not just having emotions or feeling strongly, it's having relationship feelings and caring about other people and prioritizing other people over yourself is something that is higher level behavior. It's, you know, Debrowski used the word alterocentrism as opposed to egocentrism. And that is something critical that, I mean, we should talk much more about. I wanna draw another distinction that I think is often misunderstood about emotional overexcitability. It's not a quantitative concept, emotional, Excitement, just getting excited emotionally. Hysteria is not emotional overexcitability. For Dabrowski, it's a qualitative feeling. It's depth of emotion. It's a feeling of great connectedness and deepness. And the realization that and I can't say that. That's too controversial. Just say it. That's right. Just say it. <laughs> Out with it, Bill. Your life as an individual is essentially meaningless. And what you can contribute, the legacy you leave, is what you give other people during your lifetime, your individual life, your individual accumulation of material of knowledge, of stuff, is meaningless if you don't leave a legacy that helps other people, that touches other people, that enriches other people. And I'm gonna throw out, can you have advanced authentic development without love? I don't think so. No, I don't think so. And again, when you love someone, it gives your life meaning. But in the bigger picture, the legacy of love is not what you feel. It's how you make the other person feel and what that then blossoms in their life and is perpetuated in their life. That's emotional overexcitability. Yeah, that's well said, Bill. I like that. You know, I've talked a bit already in the last couple episodes about coming to the theory and studying it. But I want to say that, I mean, when I first came to all of this, I didn't know what to think of Bill. Because I saw that there were these divisions in the Dabrowski community. And I, because I came to the theory working with Michael, I just didn't know what to expect from Bill. You know, I was, I felt a lot of anger, honestly, about how things were. And then at one point, like a couple years after I was, almost two years after I'd gotten to know Michael, Bill reached out to contact me about the archive that I had made online. And we started emailing each other back and forth. And I just want to say, Bill, that I am so grateful that we have gotten to know each other and become friends 
And I don't know, I really misunderstood you at first. And so I am grateful because I feel like we did have to go through a long process of me kind of like getting aggravated with you sometimes or not having patience. But I feel like you always had patience with me and you have always been really kind with me. And so um, I think it's cool that now we have this podcast and we can have these conversations. And Emma and I hope to have you back as a repeat guest to talk about lots of issues in depth because you bring a tremendous wealth of knowledge and experience with the theory. And we're just, we're grateful to have you here with us. And so I just wanted to say all that. Thank you very much, Chris. When I started my YouTube channel, you know, not really knowing a whole lot about the theory or what I was doing, I was very surprised that Bill actually reached out to me uh, as well. I wanted to talk uh, about the videos and about the theory um, and all that you were saying, Bill, about showing love and care for other people. I mean, you've given me a lot of your time and knowledge um, with zero expectation. And you know that I'm a reasonably blunt person. So there's been some times you've <laughs> given me some reasonably blunt truths, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of the person that, that likes that sort of stuff. And it's almost been a fatherly approach to to mentoring me and guiding me in the theory. I think as far as living Dabrowski's theory, you're setting a pretty good example um, in your retiring years in reaching out to people like Chris and myself and, and helping us along with, with no expectation for anything in return. And if there's one thing that I don't like about Bill, it's his amazing ability to stare at you down a Zoom call and absolutely read you <laughs> spot on and know what you're thinking and feeling um, and call you out on it and give you advice on it. So well, again, thanks. Thanks for all your help, Bill. You're very, very welcome. And if, if we cannot help each other avoid the quicksand in life, then we're not doing a very good job living. But speaking of your desire to help people, Bill, and to sort of get the the theory out there, um, and also in your work in maintaining uh, Dabrowski's work and his archive, are there any particular resources around the man himself or his influences, um, uh, particularly around the philosophy that you'd recommend that people look into further? Learning Dabrowski can be very daunting. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of time. I've read Dabrowski many times, and each time I read it, I see something I didn't see before. I seem to have a deeper insight into some aspect or another. So it's not something you can just sit down and breeze through. That being said, I think that the best thing people can do is to take a dual approach get the original materials and read them. At the same time, I think it's very helpful to read some of the major resources that have fed into the theory. Now, for example, if you read, and this is no easy task, but if you read Dabrowski and Kierkegaard 
or Dabrowski and Nietzsche at the same time, you will see how those authors separated by so much, by so long, and you'll see how they interweave with each other. And that really shows you that you're on the right track in understanding life and that these people are singing the same song. They've got it figured out. It's not just a theory out of left field. It's a fundamental understanding of human nature that we see the more we, we read, the more we see that mutual reinforcement. So I would say that. Now, another thing, I've tried to represent Dabrowski's ideas on my webpage and the bibliography and biography are available there to download and to look at. Now, I look at myself like the tour guide at the museum. I go along and say, oh, here's an interesting exhibition. Why don't you go and look at that? Or using my archeological example, I say, listen, I'm no expert. I'm me with my unique perspective. I'm not you, Emma. I'm not you, Chris. I can't show you anything. But here's what I can do. I can point out where you should dig. And in guiding you to a location to dig and giving you the shovel and say, okay, there. Unearth your knowledge. Unearth the truth. Dig in Nebraska. Dig in Kierkegaard. Dig in Nietzsche. And you'll spend your life discovering things that will enlighten you, that will help you, that will give you meaning. It will give meaning to the loss in your life that's inevitable in everybody's life. It will also give more meaning to the joys of life, to having children, to getting married, to being in love, to experiencing the joy of life. So as you dig, only you can dig yourself into that process of uncovering your essence and uncovering the essence of life. Beautiful. That was beautifully said, Bill. Thank you so much. Where do you think that we should go in these podcast discussions with you in the future? This is such a broad theory. And there are so many important elements that we haven't even mentioned today elements that are important to how we live our lives. For example, subject-object and psychoneurosis and creativity. I think that we should schedule some further discussions around some of these areas. And as I said, together, dig a little deeper, scratch the surface a little deeper. And I would love to also include people that are living and writing about the theory today. Uh, people like Ms. Gall Dr. Gallagher, uh, I've never met her, but I'd love to uh, have her on so that I could learn from her what she's thinking today. And of course, you've got to convince Michael to do his podcast because I am not 
the only leg that holds this table up. And we have to hear every different perspective we can because we each have a lot to offer. So let's dig into some of these topics more deeply because we can all learn from each other. Sounds good. Well put, Bill. Well put. I think that's all we have time for today. This has been an amazing discussion. Um, I've learned a whole heap from it. And for everybody who's listening in, if you want to see Zabrowski's biography or bibliography on Bill's website, you can go to positivedisintegration.com. I'd also recommend checking out Bill's book, which is Personality Development Through Positive Disintegration, The Works of Kazimierz Dabrowski by William Tillier, um, which personally for me was very helpful in my understanding of the theory as well. So, Chris, thank you to you joining us on the podcast once again as our expert. Thanks. Although, I mean, I don't really feel like the expert today since Bill's here, <laughs> but, you know, we can, it's, it was wonderful to have you, Bill. And I just, this I was even better than I expected. So thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks, Bill. Thanks a million. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And also, listeners, I'd like to thank you for joining us again on the podcast. If you'd like to contact us, you can do so through social media on both our Twitter or Instagram at Positive Disintegration Podcast or by email at positivedisintegration.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, keep walking the path to your authentic personality. Mm -hmm.